you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From the Mom Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez. The cost of living in California. Now, one of the big factors is how many kids you have. But in California, a black or Latino family with no kids has a harder time making ends meet than a white family with two kids. We'll break down the math. Plus, UTLA President Cecily Maillard Cruz joins us to explain why a full reopening for LAUSD is still not a done deal. So head on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for being with us. Coming up. Everybody would love to have five days, but let's let's be clear um, that there won't be a return to a normal. The president of United Teachers Los Angeles will join us a little bit later on to talk about what school might look like in the fall. That's just ahead. But first, a new vision for tackling L.A.'s homeless issue. The Committee for Greater L.A. is a group of community-minded folks who came together last year to workshop ideas for, well, greater Los Angeles post-pandemic. And today, it released a report identifying some of the underlying problems in how we handle homelessness here and proposed a curious solution. Here to tell us all about it is Miguel A. Santana, president of the Weingart Foundation and chair of the Committee for Greater L.A. Miguel, welcome back. Thank you so much for inviting me. Sure. Okay. Now, to pull this report together, the committee solicited the help of a governance expert and Cal State LA professor, Rafe Sonnenschein, who came up with something that he calls the center. So, uh, Miguel, what exactly is the center? You know, when we first looked at this issue, we thought what we needed was a metro type of organization who had authority, the ability to raise revenue the ability to basically build housing in incorporated cities. But when we asked Rafe, who's not a homeless expert, but a governance expert to look at it objectively, he designed something that is unique to Los Angeles and to this moment. And what he proposes is establishing a center whose purpose is to coordinate all of the investment and all of the work that's being done at the city level, at the county level, and even in the state under one central set of goals and objectives. 
Today, there are many objectives. In the city of Los Angeles, there are 15 different council members. So there are 15 different approaches to homelessness. There are tensions between the county and the city of Los Angeles. And instead of figuring out how to respond in a collective matter to the intervention of Judge Carter, the city and the county have found ways to try to get out of that um, accountability. So what this does is create a place where people with formal authority can work together on a common set of goals using their existing authority to, to deliver a better outcome for those communities experiencing yeah. homelessness and for the people who live in housing whose quality of life is being impacted. Miguel, how does how is this not another layer of bureaucracy? Because I got to admit, it, that's what it kind of sounds like at first blush. Understandable, but it's actually not a government agency. We're not interested in pursuing another form of legislation or asking the taxpayers to support another tax. What we're doing is we're simply setting a neutral place a place that is not controlled by either the city or the county, that's being convened by philanthropy and the community, and that seeks to first and foremost establish a common goal based on data, based on uh, expertise, lived experience, and realistic uh, outcomes. From that, then specific strategies will be developed. The bureaucracies will continue on their way uh, for the short term, but for the long term, what our expectation is, is that people will be start be rowing in the same direction. Today, everyone is rowing in their own direction just to survive. We think we need to find a much more coordinated way to get the job done. Rafe Sonnenstein said in the press conference earlier today that it would not be a service provider, that the center would not be a service provider. So walk us through a little bit of how it would work and what exactly it would do at the core. So currently, um, the way the city and the county intersect on homelessness is through the LA Housing Service Authority. It's a joint powers authority that was established as a result of litigation against each other. It's been around for a couple of decades. Yeah. It is a service provider. It is the agency that does the outreach to help people move into housing. It does not establish policy. And both the city and the county and LAS itself have engaged in independent conversations and reports trying to figure out how do we best use this entity? Should we get rid of it altogether or should we find a different path? What's frustrating is that they're each asking these questions independent of each other even though it's a joint authority. So what this will do is create a place where they will work together on answering that question, what role does LASA play? The other example is that the governor has made a significant investment in his budget to resolving homelessness. He made it very clear that he's expecting the cities and the county to come together to submit joint proposals to build housing specifically to convert hotels and motels into housing, as we've already seen through Operation Room Key. This means there has to be a place, most likely in a city, and services most likely provided by the county. Without a place to provide one coordinated approach, one submittal for proposals, the, the region is likely to lose out to other jurisdictions 
who are better coordinated and strategic. We're talking to These Miguel, are two examples. We're talking to Miguel A. Santana, president of the Weingart Foundation and chair of the Committee for Greater LA. Uh, I know that on the governing board, there was going to be elected officials, the mayor of Los Angeles, the county chair, and you mentioned how this would be a place where ideas and maybe a, a mission could coalesce. So what's to stop, though, the next election cycle to change or slow down the center's direction and the actions it takes? Because you know, different people have different ideas on what should work or what could work. That's a fair question. So informing and providing guidance to that governing board is an oversight committee made up of Angelinos. Angelinos who are experts on homelessness in academia, who are practitioners, who understand how mental health and substance abuse uh, play into these issues, experts in housing. It is their job to help develop a consensus on these issues. An example of that is how to deal with the encampments that exist throughout the county. Every council member has an approach, every city has an approach. There isn't one coordinated approach. It will be the job of this uh, oversight committee to reconcile the interest and the rights of homeowners, as well as those of those who are unhoused, to lay out one strategy to move forward and to align resources. They will be presenting those to the governing board who will be expected to adopt them or, or change them and ultimately implement them. The goal here is to have po good policy based on real outcomes be the driver of decision-making, not politics and sort of the flavor of the week approach that we currently have. You mentioned Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, LASA. Uh, Sarah DeSolt of LASA says the center bridges the critical gap between how individual communities and regional organizations address the issue of homelessness. Let's hear that. Without a collective table, without us organizing collective goals, collective efforts, the hyper-local approach is always going to be ineffective. So the combination of hyper-local and regional is what we were trying to tackle with this model, is to be able to lift up those conflicts, solve them, and create a, a collective mission that makes everything more effective. Miguel, you mentioned uh, how loss has been around for a couple of decades, yet we are still in the situation that we are in right now in the county and the city. Would this committee effectively reduce loss's scope? It could. But I got to tell you, in speaking to the chair of LASA and the staff at LASA, they're actually very excited about this idea. The reason is today they get conflicting direction. On one day, they're being told to do outreach in one way, and then they're told very differently from another entity. And so they're in many ways the greatest victims of the lack of a coordinated strategy. What this does is provide them the opportunity to have one set of objectives, one common approach, and one way to engage with the cities and the county. And so they are hopeful that through this kind of structure, their job will be much more focused and accountable and result in better outcomes. One more thing, Amigo, really quick. What are the next steps for this? The next steps are we're presenting it to the Board of Supervisors and to the City Council, not to ask their permission, but to inform them and to get their thoughts. And, you know, this is being led by the Committee for Greater Los Angeles, which is supported by philanthropy. We're prepared to, to pay for the first year of this effort. Mm. It will require staffing and good research 
and and support and we're prepared to make it easy so so our elected leaders who we call out in this recommendation could join us and start rowing together so that's that's the first step and we're okay. hopeful that we could begin that process within the next 30 days. We're going to check back in with you. That's uh, Miguel A. Santana, president of the Weingart Foundation and chair of the Committee for Greater LA. Miguel, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, so how much does it cost to live in California? I think we all know the answer is a lot, and a new report underscores that. It's titled The Cost of Being Californian, and it's written by the Insight Center for Community Economic Development, an Oakland-based research consultancy. It finds that one in three households in the state struggle to beat basic needs, and those precarity rates are highest for communities of color. Anne Price is the president of the Insight Center and co-author of the report, and she explains her objective in compiling this information. You know, we really want to show the difference between the federal poverty level and what it really costs to live in California, and show that there's a stark difference in how we measure economic well-being. So actually, this calculator gives us a real nuanced understanding of the true costs based on several hundred different kinds of, of family types. If you have a toddler and a teenager, we know that those costs of raising children at different ages varies. And so this calculator really accounts for those differences. When you say true cost, and what does that mean, true cost in general? That means that it really accounts for the cost of housing, the cost of food, the cost of health care, the cost of utilities, right? These are things that are not necessarily factored into our federal poverty level. And, and you're, we're talking like a bare bones, right? I mean, it doesn't include like taking a nice vacation or anything like that. It just basically means living, surviving in California. Yes, this is a bare bones budget. So it doesn't account for a vacation. It doesn't account for going out to eat or even getting a car service like a Lyft or an Uber. It is actually the very bare bones of what it costs to live in each of our 58 counties. All right. And so uh, how much does it cost to live here in California? You know, we break this down by counties. So we know that the costs are going to vary substantially. Uh, We know that the Bay Area, for example, is the most expensive place to live in the state and pretty, pretty much in the nation. What about the cost of living here in L.A. County? We found that the cost of living is rising rapidly in L.A. County, about 21 percent between 2018 and today. That's higher than what we saw in our last study when the cost of living was increasing about 9 percent. For a couple with two children, one a preschooler and one a school-aged child, it really costs $102,000 a year for them to meet their basic needs. It sounds astronomical, but that's really what the true cost of living is in Los Angeles. And what would you say, though, is the biggest expense for most people? Is it childcare? Is it healthcare? I mean, what's the number one thing that really kind of drags people down a bit? Well, what's really surprising in our data is that childcare costs now outstrip housing costs in all counties except five in the state of California. So now, childcare costs are the number one costs that families are facing. Imagine, just in Los Angeles, a couple with one preschool child is gonna pay about $4,000 more a year than if they had a child paying tuition and fees at UCLA. 
Is there a difference in the ethnic makeup when it comes to families in terms of what it costs to live here? Like, let's say a white family compared to a black family. What we really saw in our data was the fact that communities of color are struggling more than other families. One of the most stark findings that that came out of this data was that actually Black, Latinx, and Native households that have no children are struggling at a higher rate than white households who have two children. That to us was pretty shocking. That's shock. That's really shocking. I mean, and you would think, okay, if you if you take the kids out of the equation, as you just mentioned, you know, all the different costs that it uh, that it takes to raise kids, even just one, much less two or three, but that. I mean, you would think that would even things out at the very least. No, it really speaks to the, to the structures of our economy. The fact that there is unequal pay, that there is um, unpaid care for taking care of small children, our, our elders, underemployment, and even workplace discrimination. All those things factor in, and I think they really show in this data. Now, we all know about the gender pay gap. How does that factor in here? Yes, that's one of our other really surprising findings. We found that a Black woman with a bachelor's degree in California is struggling at twice the rate as a white man with a bachelor's degree. We see very differences across race when it comes to those with with a college degree or higher. So that's speaking to something very significant in our economy about pay equity and about probably workplace discrimination. We're talking to Ann Price, co-author of the recent report titled The Cost of Being Californian and is also president of the Insight Center for Community Economic Development. Um, all of this, and underscores what a lot of people have been talking about all year, especially with regards to the pandemic. And I know there's a, a bunch of possible answers to this next question, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. So why are there such significant and persistent racial and gender economic disparities across California? You know, we have to look at our labor market and the fact that many of the jobs in California and actually across the country are racially segregated. When we think about those jobs, those were really, really hardest hit by the pandemic, house cleaners, cooks, those that work in the hospitality sector, those jobs are largely held by women and people of color. We also know those jobs are less likely to have employer benefits, paid leave, and also subject to more erratic scheduling, more erratic pay that you can't depend on all the time. And so when we look at our labor market and who's in certain jobs, that's going to tell us a lot about the outcomes in terms of people's ability to just make ends meet. Governor Newsom recently released his $100 billion economic recovery package, dubbed the California Comeback Plan. Now, under that proposal, two-thirds of Californians will receive a $600 direct payment. And is that enough to maybe mitigate disparities or at least a step in the right direction? Well, it's definitely a step in the right direction. We know that families need a little bit of extra funds to make up for what they lost in the pandemic. We know that families need additional funds to think about how they're going to uh, provide additional educational resources for their children um, and get the things that they need. But this can also be coupled with other things the state is doing. The state earned income tax credit, for example, and the state young child tax credit. These are mechanisms to get more money into the hands of families that have children. And those are the families in California that are really struggling the most. 
Newsom's budget also uh, proposed uh, including uh, included allocating $35 million toward universal basic income programs in California. Um, who would that money go to and how effective of, of a solution could this be in addressing economic disparities? You know, it will really be targeted to people who really need it the most. And we know from pilots that even took place here in California that that cash can go a long way in helping people not just take care of their basic needs, but also do other things. Um, it actually helped people work more, believe it or not, right? It helped people be more present with their children. We often don't think about that as an important economic indicator, but that reduced stress also, you know, results in improved health. So these types of uh, cash stimulus kind of uh, payments can go a long way in helping people fill that gap where they are right now when they just need a little bit more money to get through the month. And one more thing, what are some other possible solutions and recommendations your organization has for eliminating and reversing economic disparities, especially as we emerge from uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? One of the areas that we've been really trying to address are criminal legal fees. These are fees that come on top of fines that are largely employed by counties. And they really can hurt and set back families, particularly black and brown families who really bear the, the brunt of these types of fees. Um, last year, we saw $16 billion of debt eliminated in this area, and we have a ways to go. But eliminating that debt puts money in the pockets of families who need them, sometimes up to six, $800 of additional funds per month. So this is a way to really address um, the means in which money is actually stripped from families and do it in a way that really focuses on racial justice. That's Ann Price, co-author of the recent report titled The Cost of Being Californian and President of the Insight Center for Community Economic Development, the organization behind the report. And thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right, school's almost out for summer, but it's not going to be out forever. That's Alice Cooper's line that I kind of mangled there. But when it comes back, will it be as a hybrid model or full on campus five days a week? UTLA President Cecily Meyer Cruz joins us to explain why a full reopening for LAUSD is still not a done deal. That's next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Democracy needs to be heard. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition. Journalism and democracy go together, like late nights and taco trucks. Each is good on its own, but they're better together. So the fact that journalism is in crisis in many places is not good for democracy. Local reporting fuels democracy. It helps us understand the communities in which we live. Show your support today at las.com slash give. Thanks. 
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Amy Martinez. It's been about a month since LAUSD reopened schools. Now, some students have returned to campus, the younger ones attending in person for half a day, the older ones about every other day. But the majority of mostly middle and high schoolers have opted not to return and are still at home attending school on Zoom. So with one more month to go in this school year, teachers, parents, and administrators are negotiating what this fall will look like on campus, in person full-time or maybe something else. Here to tell us how teachers are thinking is Cecily Meyer-Cruz, president of United Teachers Los Angeles. That's the union representing 33,000 LAUSD teachers. Welcome to Take Two. Thank you so much. Now, how has the last month gone for teachers in schools uh, reopened last month? We're hearing that it's going well on campus. Um, as far as compliance and safety issues. And so folks are excited to be there, excited to be uh, back with their students. But I can imagine um, that I've heard from parents, students, as well as educators that folks are tired. They're ready for the end of the school year. Uh, It's been a long year. I I know that uh, many students have not returned, uh, especially in the older grades, as I mentioned. And and we cannot underestimate how devastating this year has been for many families. But many have not returned in person because of what uh, the instruction looks like, the so-called Zoom in a room where kids still go to school online just on campus. Uh, What what are your thoughts on how that dynamic has been going? Well, I mean, we have a school population of over 600,000 students and trying to uh, measure safety um, precautions for everyone involved um, was key. Um, working with the district and us really trying to lay down what those safety measures would look like. And not everything is always going to be perfect. Um, and that's that's what the district and us, we've been talking about since day one, that we wanted to make sure that it was equitable across all the campuses equitable across all campuses that it sounds like you're trying to maybe make one thing be a, a kind of a fits all for all the campuses is that, is that what you're going for with this or because different campuses and different neighborhoods are have different needs possibly yeah and you're exactly right i mean places that have uh wealthier and healthier communities they had higher vaccination rates and uh lower uh, COVID rates. So that's opposite than in South Central or Pacoima or Boyle Heights. And so when we're looking at a whole district, we're looking at 925 work sites throughout our district. This is where, this is, you know, coming up with the district, talking over with, with educators and parents, and this is what we came up with. So while it's not perfect, it gave us a way to take a look at what what we have and where we are striving to go um, moving forward. Logistically, was it just not possible to try as best as 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 you could to kind of tailor a, a school situation for the neighborhood. So say, I mean, so say for, for parents that had kids in situations where they could send them all back to school, do it there, but then in another neighborhood where maybe that wasn't that big of an option, have the, have the different options available. Is that something that was possible or just not logistically feasible? It wouldn't be logistically feasible to do that and have that community uh, do a remastering um, per se, toward the end of the school year. And of course, we have folks saying, why don't you guys wait until August? Um, there were so many forces that said, we need to get back. We need to get back right now. 
And so we tried to accommodate, well, the district tried to accommodate um, in the best way they could, and we supported that. Speaking of August, uh, according to a, a lot of surveys and our own reporting here at KPCC, the, the current hybrid model is just not a desirable option. So lots of students and their parents hope uh, fall brings a return to a sort of a more pre-pandemic normal, at least in terms of the schedule. Um, Cecily, what kind of conversations are happening right now among UTLA members about a full return to school in August? That's what we want. Everybody would love to have uh, five days, but let's let's be clear um, that there won't be um, a return to a normal. A global pandemic has shaped um, our normal, and this is a time for actual transformational education. So when we're talking about returning to five days, we also need to talk about other things like uh, class size reduction something that has been on the back burner for years. Uh, we need to talk about social emotional supports and mental health supports, things that will be uh, readily available for our students. I know Governor Newsom said last week all schools should open in the fall full-time per usual. The state's uh, largest teachers union says it's open to the idea. It seems like full-time in-person instruction is going to be probably more or less required in the fall. Is UTLA okay with that? You know, if we want to fully open in the fall, We are going to need to make sure that there are honest conversations, that there are investments in place, and that things are safe. Uh, We've been on safety with the district uh, all the way through this, and all of our educators are wanting to get back uh, to a full five-day-a-week, but they also want to have safety precautions for their students as well as the communities in which we serve. So that is, it's going to take more than than Newsom and anyone else saying, yes, we should be back like it was. Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, uh, that's nation's second largest teachers union, made a lot of headlines last week when she said schools should reopen. Does that uh, sway UTLA at all? Uh, what I would say for all uh, folks that are listening, for all the local and state leaders that uh, could be potentially tuning in, my thoughts on how we ensure that schools reopen in the fall, go to the parts of the city or community hardest hit by COVID-19 and have a conversation with those families. Ask them about their needs and their wants from the public education system, and let's utilize the monies from the American Rescue Plan to make those needs and wants a reality. This is what meaningful engagement looks like and what it will take to ensure that we can equitably reopen our schools five days a week for all students in the fall. We're talking to Cecily Meyer Cruz, president of United Teachers Los Angeles, on the safety measures, because I think, you know, we all know that uh, in the last few months to a year, what is safe tends to be a subjective question, and, and it has all kinds of different answers. So for UTLA, what does safe look like in the fall? Uh, we're at the table right now with the district on what safety looks like. So um, I'm not at liberty to say. Um, But what I can tell you is we want uh, to make sure that things are safe. Like we're not going to just dispense with hand sanitizing or cleaning up the rooms, right? Um, We still have elementary students and some students that have not been vaccinated. So we do want to make sure that rooms are clean and so forth and so on. And that's going to take a partnership throughout the district uh, with all of the unions coming together around it. What is the union's position on relaxing some of the COVID-19 regulations? So just keeping students' desks three feet apart instead of the six feet or maybe dropping masks if kids and teachers are vaccinated? 
the point on the mask mandate is the guidelines are new. Um, now we're hearing all kinds of other information, and it applies to those who are fully vaccinated, and children aren't in that category just yet. Um, while you talked about, you know, high school students, elementary students are not in that uh, category yet. So it's about ensuring the school community safety and no children are fully vaccinated at this point. So even if the teacher is vaccinated, to have students come in and not have a mask or the teacher themselves not have a mask, I, I can't see that. I know LAUSD Superintendent Austin Butner is stepping down in June. Um, the pandemic put both you and him in a pressure cooker over schools and, and schools reopening. Now, Butner says that uh, he doesn't think the board has to look very far for a replacement, that a successor can be found on his current team. Do you agree? I would say I'm not quite sure. I definitely think that we need to have an educator um, who is familiar with LAUSD schools, an educator that um, will be an equity champion for all of LAUSD, and will look at uh, the district in more creative ways around uh, how we spend money. Uh, what kind of investments we need uh, throughout the city that will benefit all of our students and someone that will have an eye to look at our students are coming out of a pandemic. What exactly do they need? Do they need more standardized testing or do they need more social emotional learning? Um, Do they need ethnic studies? Do they need restorative practices? Do they need mindfulness and yoga? at school sites. We're also going to need to have um, our educators feel that administration, local superintendents have their back. It's been a very demoralizing, isolating year. And now we're coming back into schools. And what we need is to bring the, the joys of teaching and learning back for everyone. One last thing um, for LAUSD, when will all of this be hammered out between the district and the union? And when do you think families will know what the fall holds for them? I'm thinking that there is a parent survey that the district will be uh, coming out with soon. Uh, We're working um, as we have been around the clock um, around negotiations of what, um, what, the fall looks like. We're having meetings uh, with our chapter leaders uh, to have deep conversations around what we want to see um, happen at at school sites for this influx of money that's coming in from the state and the federal. And um, I think it's all promising. Uh, We we know that we have a job, we want to get it done and, uh, you know, uh, be able to have both educators, students, parents uh, feel relaxed going into the summer uh, with, you know, what will happen for next year. That's Cecily Meyer-Cruz, president of United Teachers Los Angeles, on negotiations between the union and LAUSD on what the school year might look like. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Now we want to hear from you. Should schools reopen fully in the fall and what should that look like? What do you think students need the most? Call and leave us a voicemail at 626-583-5281. That's 626-583-5281. And please give us your name and tell us where you're from. 
All right, more Take Two coming up in just a bit. Stay with us. The journalists in the LAist newsroom work for you. I'm LAist higher education correspondent Adolfo Guzman Lopez. What the students are speaking about it is, is extremely valid. My reporting is about how students use higher education toward a better life. For the first time since being in this campus, it made me feel unsafe. Struggling through challenges like ethnicity, class, poverty, and family pressures. LAist independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. There's a push in L.A. to improve the emergency response when people are experiencing a mental health crisis. Now, for many, that means moving away from using armed law enforcement. In the meantime, families continue to see their relatives die at the hands of the people who are supposed to help. In the first of two reports, KPCC's Robert Garova brings a story of a family mourning the loss of a loved one who was killed by sheriff's deputies earlier this year. On a warm day in Montebello, eight of David Ordaz Jr.'s relatives convene in the backyard of his sister's home to remember him. They sit semicircle on patio furniture, a box of tissues at the ready. Older sister Hilda Pedroza says the 34-year-old Ordaz had a kind heart. If there was a gathering, he would skim the room and look for that one person that was on the site, and he would go and talk to them. That was the kind of person that he was. Growing up one of five siblings at the family's home in East L.A., Ordaz spent a lot of time at the Our Lady of Lords Church on 3rd Street. He and his two brothers were altar boys there. Very playful. He loved his games. He loved uh, the Dodgers. He loved the Raiders. A very happy person. Then, in his late teens, Ordaz struggled with his mental health. He was diagnosed with anxiety and panic disorder, but he was able to manage this. Ordaz worked in construction, and he had three kids with his domestic partner. He lived on the same property as his dad, David Ordaz Sr., who says he and his son would hang out whenever they got the chance. We would go out to grab a bite, to get haircuts, or to the store. I always saw him as a humble person, as a son who was good to me. But a few years ago, Pedroza says the family was hit with bad news about Ordaz Sr. The biggest heartache for all of us was finding out that my dad had cancer. And especially for David. David and my dad were best friends. Ordaz and Pedroza did a lot of the caregiving for their dad. Then Ordaz Sr. got very sick with COVID-19. Another sister, Gabby Hernandez, remembers how that affected her brother. He was internalizing a lot and he, he, he felt a little bit of guilt like, did I do something wrong? Did dad catch COVID because of me? And I think it, it took a toll on him. On March 14, Pedroza panicked after her brother told her he had a knife. She was worried he might try to take his own life. 
Pedroza tried to get help for David every way she knew how that day. We had already gone to the hospital. He didn't want to get off right there. You know, I thought talking to all of us, that would help him, and he wasn't budging. Eventually, she felt she had nowhere else to turn than law enforcement. Back when Ordaz had a couple of crises in 2006 and 7, sheriff's deputies were able to peacefully de-escalate the situation. I thought about how they had helped us previously. You know, they're going to help us again. The sheriff's department says deputies saw Ordaz sitting in a parked car in front of the family home in East L.A. They ordered him to exit the car, and as he did, the department says he was holding the knife in his right hand and telling deputies to shoot him. Sister Gabby Hernandez remembers what she saw that day. When I arrived there, I, I was shocked to have seen that there were so many deputies and so many deputies with guns drawn. It, it just took me off guard. I was so in shock to see, like, what happened? The sheriff's department says deputies opened fire when Ordaz charged at them while holding the knife. But cell phone video shared by the Ordaz family appears to show him holding a knife while standing on the sidewalk. He's facing deputies in the street who are just out of frame. A deputy fires two beanbags at him. Ordaz stumbles backwards, turns, and begins to run up the sidewalk. The deputies start shooting live rounds, hitting Ordaz several times. Sister Hilda Pedroza was watching all of this unfold. They were shooting at him when he was already on the floor. But once everybody stopped, there was a pause and there was one officer. His head was still up. He was still alive. That one officer did one shot and we knew he was dead. Ordaz's parents, two sisters, two brothers and other relatives all witnessed the shooting. The family's attorney says he's preparing a wrongful death lawsuit against the county. The department says it's investigating the shooting and will release body cam video in the next few weeks. Meanwhile, Ordaz's family is trying to grieve and make sense of how David could be taken from them at such a young age. Emily Ordaz is one of David's children. I have my sweet 16 this year and knowing all my family's going to be there but him, it's like the worst thing, you know, it's, we had so much time left with him. Pedroza, who made the call to the sheriff's department trying to get help for her brother, says she's still haunted by what happened that day. Everything reminds me of David. Everything reminds me of what happened. Going outside my house, even to my porch, you know, it, it, it gives me all these nightmares that I, I, I can't even sleep. Gabby Hernandez says what happened to her brother has made her want to work on finding ways to improve how the department responds to mental health calls. To her, that means reform, if it's, you know, and the training that the law enforcement get, if it's linking with mental health and getting the appropriate professionals to handle these cases, what do we need to do? The patrol unit that responded to the Ordaz home had requested one of the department's mental evaluation teams. Made up of an armed deputy and a clinician from the Department of Mental Health, MET units are especially trained to de-escalate mental health crises. But the MET unit at the East L.A. station was unavailable that day because the deputy who staffed it was sick. The next closest team was dispatched from Lakewood and didn't make it in time. David Ordaz Sr. questions why the deputies didn't wait. The police must do something to fix all these things because if they don't, we will continue to lose children, to lose people in the community, and that's not fair. Ordaz says he doesn't want to see another family go through the same pain. Covering criminal justice, I'm Robert Garova.
Tomorrow, Robert rides along with the mental evaluation team, and he explores the debate over whether a gun should be part of the equation when dealing with people experiencing a mental health crisis. More Take Two coming up in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The economic word of the day today is disaggregate. Sorry, what's that? Use it in a sentence? If you disaggregate the data by the characteristics that influence an outcome, now I get to see, okay, who's being left behind? I'm Kai Rizdal. Disaggregation and economic inequality next time on Marketplace. Weekdays at 3 on 89.3 KPCC. Whether it's because of abuse or conflict in the home, the high cost of housing, or persistent poverty, 5,000 young people are experiencing homelessness in L.A. County. And the pandemic is expected to push that number even higher. Hi, I'm A. Martinez, host of KPCC's Take Two. On May 27th, join me for a live virtual event exploring how living on the streets or in shelters affects the mental health of these young people. Our special guests will take on the causes and possible solutions. RSVP for this virtual event at kpcc.org slash in-person. Earlier this month, Rose Cerna received a letter in the mail. Your tenancy is being terminated by reason of the fact The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist senior housing reporter David Wagner. I help Southern Californians, including renters and landlords, navigate the region's affordable housing crisis. And I help you stay on top of the ever-changing renter protections and housing policies. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places you get your podcasts, Tommy Martinez. It's merger mania in Hollywood. We'll talk about the deal between Discovery and Warner Media. Oh, and Amazon is eyeballing MGM. Plus, the latest film release in the Fast and Furious franchise could make the international box office look like it did pre-pandemic. For this and more, let's go on the lot. Joining us, as always, Rebecca Keegan, Senior Editor for Film for The Hollywood Report. Rebecca, welcome back. Hi, A. All right. New king in Tinseltown, David Zasloff, is in charge of the new streaming service to rise uh, from the Warner Media and Discovery merger. Rebecca, who is David Zasloff, and, and how will this new position be a change from his previous job of just running Discovery? Zasloff is the head of Discovery, which is the preeminent player in unscripted programming. So think Shark Week, 90 Day Fiance, <laughs> Dr. Pimple Popper. Um, it, running this new entity, though, he'll be in charge of scripted movies and TV shows. Think, you know, DC films, HBO shows. These involve much bigger budgets, much bigger risks, uh, which will be new terrain for him. He's pretty budget conscious, according to people who have done shows with Discovery. Shark Week is an be, event. You know, that Shark Week, Shark Week is, a, is an event. event. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shark Week is an event. He'll also be, you know, these are two different streaming services here. There's HBO Max and Warner Media and Discovery Plus. So it'll be interesting to see what he does with those services, if they bundle them, merge them, whatever. Now, of the streaming services, I read that he was kind of slow to embrace streaming. 
thing. So with all these question marks about his style, why is Zaslav still considered by many to be a welcome change in leadership? Well, part of that has to do with how people in Hollywood felt about the AT&T regime led by CEO John Stanky and Warner Media chief Jason Kyler. Um, they ruffled a lot of feathers, uh, particularly when they announced their plan to put all of Warner's 2021 movies um, day and date on HBO Max uh, without telling the filmmakers first. That was a big, had a lot of the town agents and, and talent kind of up in arms. Zaslav doesn't bring that sort of baggage to the table, but of course he's coming from the unscripted world, which is very, very different. You know, I got to say, what uh, just going back to that Warner Brothers thing, putting the slate on, on HBO Max, there's there's no bigger story to me, Rebecca, that is a bigger disconnect between filmmaker and fan. Because for a fan, that was awesome news. But yeah, Christopher Nolan didn't like it. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of reasons that was complicated news for filmmakers, whether because yeah. they love the big screen or because the way they get paid is tied to their box office. All right, back to Zaslav. I had to get that off my chest for a second. Uh, so what kind of reputation does he have as an executive and, and negotiator, contract negotiator? Well, he's known as a as a driver of of hard bargains. Um, people who've done business with Discovery have said that you know he kind of unfairly squeezes um, them to his advantage to their disadvantage. It'll be interesting to see whether he does that with someone like a Chris Nolan or tries to do that with someone like a Chris Nolan. I mean, hi historically, big name filmmakers and and creators who work with Warner Brothers and HBO have been treated very differently than that. To be a little fly in that room when someone, when they meet, right? <laughs> to, to hear right. how that goes, that could be very interesting. Now, okay, another big merger in the works, Amazon looking to buy MGM. Uh, what would Amazon, Rebecca, get out of that acquisition and, and who is the streaming giant competing against? Well, uh, they would get the James Bond franchise, the Rocky franchise, RoboCop, a whole bunch of uh, film and TV properties. MGM has about 4,000 films in its library. Some of them are, you know, older older characters and franchises, Pink Panther, Chucky, Legally Blonde, Tomb Raider. Um, the studio also has some new movies uh, that are kind of appealing in its assembly line. They've got Respect, the Aretha Franklin biopic starring Jennifer Hudson, um, Ridley Scott's House of Gucci starring Lady Gaga and Adam Driver, uh, an animated Adams Family sequel, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson 1970s movie uh, starring Bradley Cooper. So a lot of good stuff there. Now, Apple and Comcast had, Comcast had previously looked at MGM and decided it was worth a little bit less than what MGM is asking for. Uh, but time will tell whether Amazon and, and MGM come to a deal on this. James Bond, RoboCop, Rocky. That was uh, Little A. Martinez uh, VHS tapes in the 80s. That's all I would do yeah. all weekend long is watch those those movies. Um, you know, when media companies merge and become even more powerful, I mean, what's the potential impact on, contact, uh, on content creators and how business is conducted in Hollywood? Well, for creators, it means there are fewer doors to knock on with a potential project. But in the last decade, we've seen the entrance of these deep-pocketed Silicon Valley companies like Netflix, Amazon, Apple. And those uh, companies have made it so that traditional studios really have had to consolidate in order to compete. We're talking to uh, Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. All right, changing gears a bit, uh, F9, the new Fast and Furious movie, comes out in theaters, in U.S. theaters, at the end of June. But uh, the film opens overseas this week. And uh, how eager might moviegoers in other countries uh, be to go to the theaters, Rebecca, you think? 
Well, Universal hopes they will be very eager. The movies opening in Korea, Hong Kong, the Middle East, Russia, and China in the coming days. It's expected to make uh, between 150 million and 180 million at the international box office. As you said, you know, F9 doesn't open here in the U.S. until June 25th, but this will be a very interesting test of the foreign market. How have uh, other movies fared in foreign markets in recent weeks? Well, Asian markets, China and Japan particularly, have have been a source of optimism, um, partly for local films, movies like Hi Mom, Detective Chinatown 3, the Demon Slayer, latest Demon Slayer movie have all done very well in Asia. Hollywood movies in the post-pandemic era have not really e exploded internationally. Partly that's because there haven't been there hasn't been one as big as F9. This will be the kind of the first test um, uh, of a big anticipated franchise that typically does very, very well overseas coming out in this uh, post-COVID era. Rebecca, have you settled on the film that'll bring you back to the movie theater? You know, I think it's going to be in the Heights. I think that's yeah, the one yeah. that will bring me back. What about you? No, not yet. I'm trying to be not like myself and not make it a comic book movie. I want it to be anything but a comic, just so I can show growth and, you know, development. <laughs> but I, you know, oh, it, who cares? This is not the time for growth. This is the time for doing and going and seeing exactly what your heart desires. It's for sure by the time The Flash comes out in 2022. <laughs> but I'll, I'll definitely right. go into the theater for that one. But I'm hoping that I don't go over 2021. That's that's my big goal. Um, one more thing, uh, Rebecca. Television news. Uh, Daytime's looking for a brand new star to replace Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, what do we know about the search for the next leading afternoon talk show host? Well, Ellen's signing off in spring of 2022, and Tiffany Haddish is the person who's widely seen as a, as a dream get and who's being heavily courted uh, to, to take over this role. You know, daytime TV ratings have really suffered, um, so networks would like someone who's broadly entertaining, advertiser-friendly, which Haddish is perceived to be. She's also, as a stand-up comic like Ellen, someone who has the work ethic and the appetite for a daily show, which can be pretty demanding, as you know. And one more last thing, Rebecca. I wanted uh, you to tell us about uh, the profile you wrote about TV writer Charlotte Brown. Uh, who is she and why is she important to the history of television? Oh, Charlotte is the first woman to run a network TV show. She was the executive producer of Rhoda in the 1970s. She had been a writer on the Mary Tyler Moore show, Newhart, and some others. She's really a trailblazer in the industry and a fascinating person. You know, it's funny in, in your story, you mentioned how like once she showed she was successful, all the other TV networks thought, we got to get ourselves one of those women to, <laughs> to run a show. Yeah, it was not just her. There was a wave of women being hired in the 70s and a, a sort of whole generation of women who came in on that didn't necessarily fare through the rest of their careers. She was also affected somewhat by ageism and at one point told her agent told her not to admit that she had written for the Mary Tyler Moore show, which is sort of like telling oh someone gosh. not to admit they played for the 1927 Yankees. I mean, it's, you know, one of the greatest shows of all time. So uh, a long and fascinating career. Yeah. You can also admit that you were part of Take Two. No, I don't know if you want to do that, That's to right. Rebecca, That's out loud. Right. No, just just here. That's Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. You can find that profile of Charlotte Brown at uh, HollywoodReporter.com. Rebecca, as always, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. All right, that's going to do it for Take Two. You can uh, find us on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. You can find me there as well, at A. Martinez LA. That's at A. Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two will be back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next.
As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.